and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, this past week was a challenge because it was a, my week back to work after holidays. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully this next week will be better. Yeah. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I also had a hard time getting back into the swing of my day job. Uh, maybe let things sit a little to the last minute that I shouldn't have, but everything's fine and should be, you know, smooth sailing from here on. Also, um, as someone who does a lot of like D&D related things in my life, I run a lot of games. Um, I've at times like run games for money. Uh, I write adventures and, and put them up for sale and so on. The last week had a lot of drama in the tabletop role playing game community over several like corporate decisions being made. And it made the past week feel like, like a year. (laughs) So, uh, I am also kind of tired, but hoping for better things. Yeah. There are better things ahead, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just this episode, but uh, the poll for February's horror-adjacent bonus episode is up. Uh, It's a very tight race, Uh, so go take a look at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. And uh, coming up in a couple weeks will be January's horror-adjacent bonus episode on Death Becomes Her. So lots of fun things coming. Yeah, absolutely. What are we watching this week, though? This week, Sarah, we are watching Caltiki, Il Mostro Immortal, from 1959, directed by Robert Hampton. That doesn't match my intel. Who the heck is Robert Hampton? Well, allow me to tell you, Sarah. Okay. So, Caltiki is the follow-up to E. Vampiri. Uh, made largely by the same filmmaking team. Uh, Il Vampiri was from 1957. It was the first sound Italian horror film. Um, I recall liking it. Yeah, we covered that in episode 207, and E. Vampiri is ranked at number 85. Yeah, so so pretty good. Yeah, pretty good, Um, especially considering that there are 257 movies on the list so you know top 100 so from 1957 to 1959 is not that long of a turnaround time to produce like a follow-up in regular like calendar time but in terms of like the number of episodes of scream scene it's been since then uh it's been a while so to kind of set the stage a little bit about what the italian film industry was like at the time the 1950s was a period of huge growth for the Italian film industry. I think they went from doing like 20 films a year at the start of the decade to like 200 films a year by the middle of the decade. Wow. Yeah, it was this big um, post-war boom, um, partly caused by like the acceptance abroad artistically and critically of like Italian neorealist 
cinema, stuff like Bicycle Thieves and Rome Open City and things like that, but also a lot of like success in straight up just like commercial genres, we Mm -hmm. will say, Um, with that growth enabling Italian filmmakers to experiment with new genres, as well as shoot for an international audience rather than just an Italian one. So, you know, it was finally being seen that like Italian films could hold their own on the international stage, something that hadn't really been true since like, I think before World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the 50s and the 60s is when you see the rise of people like Fellini and, and all these other like great Italian filmmakers. So Ivan Piri uh, had cost 142 million lira to make, and it had had a very difficult production, uh, which we talk about in that episode. That production led to the director of Ivan Piri, Ricardo Freda, uh, leaving the set two days before production ended, with his cinematographer, Mario Bava, finishing the film. Ivan Piri grossed 125.3 million lira, so it was not successful. Mm. Um, And it was felt that this showed a reluctance on the part of Italian audiences to accept the horror genre. However, the Italian release of Horror of Dracula the next year was a big hit, as that movie was a big hit kind of worldwide in 1958. And that suggested that Italian audiences were perhaps more accepting of horror pictures if they came from foreign countries. Okay. Which frustrated uh, Ricardo Freda, who felt that English and German-speaking countries should not have a monopoly on films of a uh, fantastical nature, Mm -hmm. um, fantastique cinema, uh, meaning, you know, horror, but also sci-fi and fantasy and whatnot. Born in 1909 in Alexandria, Egypt, Ricardo Freda had been working in the Italian film industry since 1937 and directing features since 1942. After the poor response to Ivan Piri, he decided to make his next genre movie under the pseudonym Robert Hampton to give the impression that it was a foreign film brought into Italy. Okay. Funding for Caltiki came from Galatea Film, which had just scored the biggest Italian box office hit up to that point in history with the 1958 worldwide smash blockbuster movie Hercules starring Steve Reeves. Um, you, you, you're looking at me like I should know this movie. Do you not know Hercules? I, I, well, I know of Hercules. Sure. I don't know him personally. So the 1958 Hercules, it's not the first Swords and Sandals epic. There was like the robe in 1958 and like Roman movies were always kind of popular in Hollywood. Um, you know, Ben-Hur comes out in 1959. But those are more like biblical and biblically adjacent. Right. But whereas Hercules is definitely not. Yes. So in 1954, um, the film Ulysses was made in Italy, but with an American star. And that was kind of like the first of these, like, let's adapt mythology into like an epic. But Ulysses had nothing on the success of Hercules. Hercules was huge. That movie's success kind of kicked off like a huge um, Swords and Sandals era in film worldwide. And like these Swords and Sandals movies even led to like that genre then like coming back to America. And that's where you kind of get the influx of like the Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies and Jason and the Argonauts and and all that kind of stuff in that period. Yeah, yeah. So flush with cash, Galatea Films was in the mood to like experiment with new genres and like see, 
you know, what can we do? So producer Nello Santi was looking to back a sci-fi picture. Now, science fiction was really new in Italy. The first Italian sci-fi film that wasn't a comedy uh, was La Morte Vienna Dallo Spazio, a.k.a. The Day the Sky Exploded, from 1958. Okay. But Galatea intended Caltiki primarily for foreign markets. Um, they felt that, like, yeah, we can release a sci-fi movie in Italy. You know, it's been done before, but, like, we're really making this with the intent that it's going to get dubbed and shown in other places because that's where the big money on Hercules had been. Um, they even credited the producer of the film as Samuel Schneider on U.S. prints. <sighs> A common tactic of Italian films seeking international distribution at this time was to use an English-speaking lead actor who would then, like, dub their own voice for the English release, such as Steve Reeves in Hercules or, you know, Clint Eastwood in the still-yet-to-come spaghetti westerns of the 60s. So, you know, they got their English-speaking star for this movie. I assume you've heard of the great John Maraville? No. Yeah. Um, okay, you so, had me worried. So John Maraville was born in Toronto in 1917. Oh, he's Canadian. He was the son of two English stage actors, and he was educated at Oxford. At age 15, he appeared as a newsboy in The Invisible Man. So we've technically seen him already in a movie <laughs> for this show. Um, he got his big start on stage as an understudy in Laurence Olivier's theater company in the 30s and 40s. He fought as a pilot for the Royal Canadian Air Force in World War II. And uh, primarily, he worked as a theater actor throughout his career, um, despite a few appearances on film over the course of it. From 1941 to 1948, he was married to actress Jan Sterling. And from 1959 to 1967, he was um, Vivian Lee's partner, um, she, of course, had been married to Laurence Olivier while Maryville had been working for Laurence Olivier. Mm -hmm. um, but Olivier and Lee's um, marriage kind of deteriorated due to Lee's health issues. She struggled with uh, bipolar disorder and chronic tuberculosis, and that made things very hard on the two of them. And ultimately, they divorced. Um, Maryville and Lee never got married, but... They were partners. He lived with her, and he actually ended up basically serving as her primary caretaker um, as she struggled with her health for the last few years before her death in 1967. So after Lee's death, Maryville had a relationship with actress Dinah Sheridan uh, until his death in 1990. So Kaltiki is essentially a blob ripoff with a Mayan a fake Mayan backstory. Mm. Yeah. When you told me that it had like this Mayan connection as like a Mayan goddess or something like that, uh, I did try to see like, what would the actual like Mayan God or goddess of like vengeance or something like that be? And there's no clear cut answer. Mm -hmm. I got different answers depending on whether I searched like, vengeance or even revenge or war or death so i i'm not even going to try to be like here's who this actually is yeah 
the opening credits of the movie mention like an old legend is providing the basis for the story, uh, but there is no such deity as Keltiki in real Mayan mythology or any other like Mesoamerican mythologies. It's all just made up whole cloth. Um, unlike the blob, which was made primarily of uh, silicone and red food dye, uh, this movie's monster was made of cloth and tripe. Interesting. Uh so for those of you listening who don't know what tripe is, it is the edible lining of an animal's stomach. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it can be prepared in different ways. Uh, I'm familiar with it through cooking shows. Mm. Um, so this smelled horrible yes. under the studio lights. And it also attracted flies, which ruined the scale of shots that were meant to make the monster look huge. Uh, so it was a very difficult shoot. Now, just like Eve Ampiri, Freda once again worked with Mario Bava as his cinematographer. Born in 1914, Bava's father was sculptor-cinematographer-special-effects man Eugenio Bava, uh, who Mario followed into the film industry. Bava had shot the 1954 film Ulysses as well as the hits Hercules and Hercules Unchained. Um, and following his completion of Eve Ampiri, he basically did the same job and completed the science fiction film Day the Sky Exploded, uncredited for director Paulo Hoosh. So Freda felt that Bava needed to be like pushed into the director's chair. He mm -hmm. felt that it was like, you know, Bava, it's like time for you to get out of the safety of being a cinematographer and really just like be a director for realsies. He did not like that Bava was still doing cinematography, which he felt Bava was only doing because different directors kept hiring him to be their cinematographer. So there wasn't really like space or room for Bava to like pursue his own projects. So he hired Bava for Kaltiki and then reportedly Freda left the production early in shooting in order to force Bava to direct the bulk of the film. Do you know what Freda did? Did, like, he just, like, left to go to the beach? Like, so hiding in his hotel room? In the years since Kaltiki has come out, um, you know, Mario Bava went on to be a very prominent director of Italian horror film. He's mm -hmm. considered the father of Italian horror. All of these things that we'll be talking about in episodes to come. And because of that, stories about exactly what happened with Kaltiki have been conflicting mm. over the years. So paperwork from the production shows that uh, Ricardo Freda was originally contracted to be paid 6 million lira as the film's director, and that he was ultimately only paid 5 million lira. Meanwhile, Mario Bava was contracted to be paid 3 million lira as the film's cinematographer, but was ultimately paid 6.25 million lira. So clearly... Freda did less work than was expected, and Bava did much more work than was expected. Originally, the story given by Freda was that he left the shoot with two days remaining, um, which is also what happened on Evan Piri. Mm -hmm. So he might be getting the two films mixed up. However, when asked, he said that it should be credited as a Bava film, not as a Freda film, despite the fact that, you know, he only left with two days remaining. Also, Around that time, uh, Bava said that he felt that Kaltiki should be counted as his first film and that Freda abandoned the set because the movie was in shambles and he just like couldn't deal. However, 
later on, like those statements were given in the 1970s. By the 1990s, the story had changed. And by then, um, Freda was saying that like he directed the picture, that Bava only shot the special effects scenes, and that Freda only left the film during the editing process. And around that time, Bava was also saying that the picture should be seen as a Freda film. So it's really interesting because it's not like Freda saying, no, it's really me. And Baba saying, no, it's really me. Or them saying the others. It's like they both used to say it's a Mario Bava movie. And now, or like later on, they both said it should be seen as a Freda film. I think the clarification would probably come from the opinion of horror or rather Italian horror at the time. Mm. Because in the 70s, that's when Baba is big. Right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, count that as his first film. Cool. Like, everyone's having a good time. In the 90s, I have no clue. Mm -hmm. But if it was, say, like, not as well-received or this movie in particular was being, like, seen on Mystery Science Theater 3000 Mm. level of quality or something, then maybe the storytelling around the film would change so that it wouldn't hurt Bava's legacy. Yeah. um, That's a really great analysis i don't know how true that is but it feels very like possible to me um Baba's... i'm also just speaking out of my ass i have no sure clue. yeah um but it, it's kind of that's kind of how storytelling goes right yeah baba's biographer says that freda walked off set after two to three weeks of filming and that baba did all of the effects shots that's kind of like consistent everyone kind of agrees he did all the effects work which makes sense given like his work history mm-hmm. however the film's production manager, Massimo Derita, states that Freda was away from the set 90% of the time, uh, leaving things basically entirely in Bava's hands, that it was not a case of Freda like leaving instructions for Bava and Bava following them, that Bava was coming up with his own shit, that Freda had no idea what was going on, that Bava was the one who told the actors what to do, shot all of the monster scenes, and shot all of the death scenes. So we just, we have a lot of different tales over the years about who should get the lion's share of credit for directing this movie. All I can tell you is that the name on the film is Robert Hampton. Well, shout out to Robert Hampton, wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) So Caltiki Il Mostro Immortal was released August 8th, 1959 by Lux Film, which was an Italian distribution company owned by noted anti-fascist Riccardo Gualino. It only made 94.15 million lira, even less than Evampiri. In the U.S., it was released in September of 1960 by Allied Artists as Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster. And it is available today on Blu-ray from Arrow Video and on Tubi and iTunes. So Mario Bava goes on to be father of Italian horror. Yes. This would kind of be seen as like his early beginnings, right? Like he's cutting his teeth on mm-hmm. horror and stuff. Uh, so he's not like coming out here with a smash hit like Horror of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Baba's next film, After Kaltiki, which he is the undisputed director of, is a movie called Black Sunday. Oh. Yeah. What year is that? 1960. Okay, so the Italian audience is not yet ready to accept horror they need a little bit more there's a little bit of growth on both sides of the screen Mm -hmm. interesting okay well folks uh hopefully you can find a copy of 
this movie to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Celtiki, Il Mostro Immortal from 1959, directed by Robert Hampton. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Celtiki Il Mostro Immortal from 1959, directed by Robert Hampton, a.k.a. Ricardo Freda, a.k.a. Mario Bava, I guess. Um, ben, what did you think? Celtiki, dope as fuck. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it as well. I think the pacing had some trouble. Interesting. Because, yes, we'll get into that in the discussion. Interesting. Just, there's only so many shots of, like, dude running to a house trying to get in and being faced with towels that I can stand. I don't know, man. I was pretty good for all of it. Sure. I mean, like I said, it's it's good. Well, here's the rundown. Uh, we open at uh, an archaeology dig in Mexico. And these scientists are here to try to investigate like what they're calling the Mayan migration. Basically, Mayan people used to live here, and then they left, and we don't know why. So trying to figure that out. And when we open, we see this delirious man, who we later learn is named Nieto. Uh, he's running back to camp from this cave, and he's delirious. He's ranting about uh, the colleague who accompanied him, Elmer, and Kaltiki. And everyone at the camp is like, "What is? Who, who's Kaltiki? What are you saying? What's going on? So they have a small party to go to the cave uh, and investigate. Included in this party are kind of our two main characters here, uh, at least male main characters uh dr john fielding and his friend max gunther now there's been a lot of volcanic activity in this area and so there's a new cave opening when they go over to where the two men had been going into the cave they discover a shrine to a mayan deity named Kaltiki. now they don't find almer's remains uh but they do find his camera so they take that back Within this shrine, there's also like, you know, some statues and stuff. And then this deep, deep lake. So after developing the film, they watch whatever it was that Ulmer captured on the video camera. Video camera? Is that accurate? No. Uh, film camera? Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's, again, still no answer as to what happened. Just that something came out from behind Ulmer that led to Nieto like unloading his entire gun into whatever was there, uh, and that's it. So they go back to the cave. They think, okay, let's go into this lake with our dive gear to see if Elmer's body's down there. The person who does the swimming down, uh, I believe his name was Bob? Correct. Okay. It was a little unclear on the cast list. Uh, so Bob 
swims down. He doesn't find Elmer's remains, but he does find the remains of people who would have been sacrificed to Kaltiki, including all of their jewelry and their gold. So he swims back up. He relays what he found, and he's like, I'm going to go back down for treasure. He does that, and then during that second run down is when he is attacked by something. They pull up Bob, and he has been like melted slash maybe mummified in a neat way he's been he's been munched on like (laughs) acidically yeah and then we see this like blob come out of the lake i don't think blob is trademarked with that movie so i'm just going to be referring to keltiki as a blob sure um the blob arises out of the lake and as everyone is getting out of there max injures his arm he tries to reach for the treasure and it gets blobbed and John manages to get Max out of there. With some quick thinking, John sees a nearby truck full of gas canisters and drives it towards where this giant blob is coming out of the cave and it explodes in fire. They manage to get to a hospital and Max's hand is like completely dissolved, but they manage to get the like blob specimen off and into some kind of like canister and Max is now under observation for healing, etc. Uh, the doctors do say that there is some kind of like poison in Max and in his bloodstream. And this will eventually drive him mad, uh, almost like mummifying his brain. And here's where I'm going to introduce our two main female characters. They've been here this whole time, but um, now is when I'm going to talk about them. So we have Linda. She's Mestizo. Uh, and she is dating Max, but they clearly aren't the best suited together. And Ellen, who is John's wife, she came on the expedition because she thought it was going to be like a second honeymoon, but John works too much. Gotta, gotta, gotta. Now, during the expedition before Max's hand got melted off, uh, he does try to make a pass at Ellen. Uh, She shoots him down and Linda's like, see Max? gotta stay with me and max is like yeah but i hate you so that's the relationships right now now that max is hurt in the hospital linda is staying by his side and you know is trying to make him feel better all these things and does confirm to the doctors and to john that max is going insane he has a lot of paranoia he will switch from being like super sad to being super happy like he's clearly not in his right mind Next thing we know, Max escapes from the hospital by murdering his nurse pretty brutally, which we do see fairly much on screen. Yeah. In fact, like a lot of stuff is directly seen on screen. Like when Sarah talks about like Max's hand is melted, like we see like a skeleton hand coming out of like melted flesh. And like, like there's a lot of like on screen gore in this movie. The next bit of the movie uh, will intercut between Max being on the run and John trying to do these um, experiments and investigations about the blob. Um, Now, John is motivated because he wants to help Max, and a lot of those experiments are kind of coming down to treating the blob as if it's like a giant amoeba, like a single-cell organism. He determines that it's like 20 million or 200 million years old, like it's super, super old. And in one experiment when using gamma radiation, which they found evidence of in the cave, uh, the blob specimen that he's using grows 
in strength. So he theorizes that like, okay, with this radiation, it could even like reproduce, it'll get bigger, etc. Now there's another scientist and his assistant who are here. I didn't catch the names, but one is an older gentleman and then the assistant is like, you know, the young up-and-comer. They are also investigating this. And in Keltiki's cave, they had found this prophecy that like, you know, Keltiki's power and vengeance on the world will come when her betrothed comes from the sky or something like that. And they basically like go to an astronomer and are like, hey, what was going on in the stars at this time during the Mayan civilization? And the guy's like, well, there was a comet going by that increases the atmospheric radiation. It's weird that you should ask me about that because tonight's the night that's going to happen again. <laughs> what are the odds? So the older scientist is like, oh, shit, that's really bad. That's going to cause the blob to be all kinds of bad news. I need to get to John's house and warn him. He hops in his car, drives gets into a car accident, flies off a cliff, and the car explodes as it hits the impact. Wild. <laughs> Absolutely wild. So <laughs> there's a lot of things that happen simultaneously, basically, because we're intercutting a lot. So while the older scientist is driving and the car explodes, we see John at home and then gets pulled away uh, because at the radiation lab, basically... Some poor janitor accidentally hit the switch and caused the radiation to increase. And now that blob specimen uh, is getting bigger and bigger. So he runs out. Important to note here that um, that's like one of the specimens. The other half of the specimen is kept at John's house. Yeah, which like, to be honest, is like good scientific practice. Like they have this one specimen they took off of max's arm and then it's like okay we want to see what the effect radiation is on it well so then they cut it in half because like you still want some specimen left over if the radiation like ruins it or something right absolutely meanwhile to john running over to the radiation lab we see that max is breaking into john's house uh tears out the telephone lines turns off the electricity and uh, he manages to get into the house thanks to Linda, who's staying with uh, John's family. Um, and then Max begins to threaten Ellen, uh, who's in her nightgown, etc. Very classic Universal vibes. So all of these things are happening at the same time-ish, but I'm going to kind of go through sort of order of events here. So the radiation lab, uh, they had called up John to say, hey, thing is growing what do we do? John said, burn it and burn the place down if you have to. By the time we get to the radiation lab, it's completely burned down. And John's like, well, I guess, you know, poor guard person who was here and has lost his life. That younger scientist assistant who had been with that older guy at the observatory rushes into the lab and he's like, John, we've been trying to contact you. Comet is coming. And John's like, oh, shit. The specimen at my house. I gotta get home. He is racing home and gets pulled over because he blows through a check stop. So he gets pulled over and then is taken to jail. And he's like, no, like, you guys, I have to go. The end of the world. And they're like, yeah, yeah, buddy, save it for the judge. So we see him break 
out of jail, get back to his car and continue driving to his house. All through this, Max is threatening Ellen. Ellen manages to get to Linda and Linda tries to talk Max down because he's like waving a gun around, um, but she gets shot. Then they hear something going on in the lab and Max is like, get out here, John. I know it's you. It's not John. It's the blob who has multiplied into many blobs and it attacks and kills Max uh, and begins to like grow and maneuver through the house. So Ellen runs upstairs to get her daughter who has been here the entire time. She's like four or five, whatever, grabs her and they make their way to the attic. John finally manages to get to the house, but he can't get in or up to help Ellen because there are so many blobs all around the house. The cops come in. They're like trying to shoot it. It's not working. Luckily, at some point, I forget when in the story, but John manages to tell someone to call the National Guard to get their flamethrower divisions. They arrive to the house. We hear voiceover of like the radio announcer being like, We've declared a state of emergency. All National Guard, go to John's house. Literally, that is what they say. We see the flamethrowers going on the blobs and on the house. And then we see them bring in the tanks because now there's one giant blob. And finally, they are able to kill enough of the blobs so that John is able to get a ladder, go up, save Ellen and his daughter, and then get away. And that's the end. The blob has been defeated. Yeah. So is there anything that I might have missed in trying to capture the chaos of the like intercutting at the end that you you would like to call out? No, I don't think so. I think you hit all the important points. I think the thing to understand about this is like, this is a movie where stuff does not stop happening, which I, I really appreciated about this movie. There's always stuff going on. There's not like a big long middle section of this movie that's just people standing around and talking and being like, well, but what if plot happened? Because we have the subplot of like Max breaking out. And that means that there's always like some sort of action to be Mm -hmm. cutting back to. And things are always kept like moving. And I know that you, you made a crack about like how many times can we see a shot of like John trying to get at the house and there's like a blob in his way. But I would much rather have like that where like the things that are elongating the movie are more like action because the thing is is like this movie is very high energy and it's kept high energy because of like the editing and the cinematography right like this is a movie that does like sudden cuts between things and zoom ins and zoom outs for like maximum visual impact and i i'm much more of a fan of that than like and here's the car pulling up to the house and somebody getting out of it and then walking to the door you know what i mean like yes i'm totally there with you about you know the dynamic camera and lighting it starts like right off mm. with that kind of stuff some very fantastic work from the part of whoever the director is well i'm gonna um, just say it's mario bava who yeah. i'm gonna give credit to because he's either the director like he's definitely the cinematographer yeah and then he's either the cinematographer and the director and the special effects guy or he's just the cinematographer and the special effects guy so i think either way you can give the credit for this movie looking really great to mario bava yeah the way that some of the the beginnings of when 
the scientist is running from the cave and he's delirious. Like they do a lot of really interesting things to kind of keep your interest, even as we're like going like, well, what the fuck is going on? And it really draws you in. And that energy never really goes away. It builds tension. And Mm. so when it maybe slows down in moments like that, you're still like there with it. Right. Because the tension is there. And the thing about like the way the movie is shot. So it's black and white. And Bava knows how to use like light and shadow. And what I really appreciate about this is even in like regular dialogue scenes, there are very few shots in this movie that are just like, well, we set a camera up and we pumped a lot of light at the actors and we just kind of shot it. Like there's very few shots that look like they were just done in the most simple way possible. Like Bava knows, like, even if he's just doing a shot of Ellen coming downstairs, like, okay, it's dark, but we need to be able to see her. So let's get like a backlight so that her hair has like some rim lighting to it so we can see her against the backdrop. And let's throw like some side light coming in on like the railing of the stairs even though like it doesn't make sense where that would be coming from but it's giving visual interest to the shot and it lets us see the sides of things like he knows how to fucking light shit so like Mm -hmm. nothing looks too dark to see but also nothing looks like blandly overlit um you know shots of max in his hospital bed with his like two-face makeup uh all look really good and moody even the like cloth and tripe blob monster like looks good i think yeah i think it does not look bad for Mm -hmm. fabric and tripe yeah you know it has this really neat texture look to it yes um the way that they have whatever is making it move Mm -hmm. move like it looks really neat and i really liked the effect that they had when it was um splitting into multiple ones or when it was being pulled off of max's hand it has like these these strings of jelly or something yeah it looks really good yeah like honestly the effects here with the goop and the like way that um it eats through things so that there's like this wet muscly dissolved gore around like bone and it's not just the hand like we see that happen to skulls like twice yeah and it all like looks really good and it looks like the primitive version of like what monster movie gore is going to look like in like 20 years. Right. Like I'm thinking of stuff like um, the copious use of KY jelly on alien and and things like that. Right. Sure. Yeah. And I think outside of the blob itself, I think the special effects were really well done Mm -hmm. for the, the models that we see both like the model of the the volcano going uh the model truck driving up the model house um, yeah the model house is really well done because like there's the real set that they're in and mm-hmm. then there's clearly like a model version of it for the blob to move through and smash walls and furniture and stuff and it's not like immediately directly obvious like oh this is the tinker toy version right Yeah, and I think even when fire comes Mm -hmm. in as well, it looks really well done. Yeah, the the, uh, matte work, I think, is really top tier. So there's some really good matte paintings, especially near the start of the movie when they're in the Mayan ruins. Yeah, great gore. I think the editing has a very lively pace to it. So for me personally, like, I don't have a lot to complain about here. Okay. Well, let me tell you about where some of my complaints are. Sure. So, yes... It's a very dynamic movie with the camera, the lighting, the editing, but I felt it was uneven in parts. There are places where it's like, whoa, they're really going balls to the wall here. And then there were other moments like 
when Max, Linda, and Ellen are in the living room in that confrontation, it didn't have the same kind of tension as I would have expected given the strong elements earlier in the Hmm. movie. So it just felt uneven. That could be the result of maybe that's when someone other than Bava was directing. Like there, there are many things to point to, but it was a little uneven. We've seen worse, 100%. Yeah, I think that like if the movie is uneven, it's remarkably good for a movie that at some point in its production somewhere had a director switch. And the other part that I will complain about, and you might just like be like, Sarah, what the fuck with this? Context. Ben and I have seen every Godzilla movie ever made. Well, actually asterisk to that because (laughs) we haven't seen some of the more recent things. I think the most recent is Shin Gojira. Yeah, we haven't seen the most recent American Godzilla movies. We've seen every Japanese Godzilla movie ever made. So I'm very familiar with models arriving to shoot things at the big bad. Right. And knowing, A, the cost of that stuff, and B, knowing, like, that's why butts are in seats, Mm -hmm. I know why we get superfluous attention paid to model fights. Sure. In this movie, I felt like... The ending climax mm. where John's trying to get into the house. No, we have to wait for the firefighters. The firefighters come and they're shooting all the little blobs. Okay. No, let's bring in the tanks. They're shooting. Why are they shooting? No, they need to use their flamethrowers. Cool. Sure. Let's use the flamethrowers. Here's one getting completely engulfed. Here's one shooting with flamethrowers. Here's another shooting with flamethrowers. Oh, hey, here's another one shooting with flamethrowers. It's like, guys... You're dragging this out, and I know you're supposed to like be feeling super excited and, and all these things, but it just was like, I think it was the fact that he f- got fucking arrested, mm. and we had to watch him break out of jail, that I was just like, why are we padding for time mm. during the climax? Sure. And so that kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth, and then get that bad taste went into everything that was maybe supposed to be more exciting than I interpreted it as. Got it. I thought the fact that he got arrested was hilarious. Um, I do like agree with you on the like, why was this here? Like, because I don't like um, what I call plot cul-de-sacs where things happen that are then just sort of easily undone. Like if you can cut a thing out of the movie without me noticing it's gone, that's you should have cut it. Right. And I felt that way with some of Max's antics when he's on the run. Yes, for sure. On the other hand, intercutting to that is what helps keep the energy up in like the middle like let's do science science part of the movie so that it doesn't have that like american standing around talking feeling so that serves like a purpose yeah the thing about the getting arrested is it's really meant to like be in another attempt to drive up the suspense with like oh like he's been delayed getting home like is max gonna get ellen kind of thing but it's probably a step too far i just thought it was funny because that shit never happens in movies like <laughs> someone just like arresting James Bond and being like sorry like Blofeld's gonna win because like you broke a speed limit on the other hand I get what you're saying about like the unnecessary escalation and like the lengthening out of the final battle this movie is 76 minutes long which means that like when we're talking about drawing out the ending 
we're talking about something that could have been two and a half minutes that is maybe five. And it's hard for me to get upset about that when I live in a world with like the Hobbit trilogy and the (laughs) Avatar movies where it's like, hey, this action scene of the Hobbits going from like this side of this bridge to this other side of this bridge is going to be an hour out of this five hour movie kind of thing. Like, and I get that like that kind of retroactive opinion making is like not the style of our show. I'm just sort of, I guess, coming at like why I can't get mad at this. Yeah, totally. I'm just saying like, these are the things that I felt Mm -hmm. needed to be complained about. Sure. Um, So with that in mind, I feel like this movie has a very strong start and all right middle, like it does fairly well. And then a poorly paced ending. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, disagree with you on that. Um, But you know, it's also not like perfect. Yeah. uh, For sure. Like it, it is, it's the Italians doing like one of these cheesy American monster B movies, I will say it's not really a blob ripoff so much as it's a Quatermass ripoff. Well, that might've also been why I was a little frustrated Mm. unintentionally. Mm. And this is me like telling myself, like wagging a finger to myself in the mirror being like, don't be disappointed because a movie didn't deliver what you thought it was supposed to deliver. Right. But because Max is infected, Mm. I thought he was going to turn into the blob. Yeah, like in the first Quatermass movie. Yeah, Quatermass Experiment from 1955. And he doesn't, obviously. Um, And I just felt like that was like a missed opportunity to kind of tie in why him being on the loose is such a big deal. Yeah, especially like they talk about, you know, like the the poison is going to reach his brain and stuff. I felt like they were kind of doing it and then like just didn't follow through on it. Like, cause he kind of gets like a monster hand, but we don't really like see it. So yeah, that's an idea that doesn't get like taken to its logical conclusion, but definitely the like guy gets infected by the monster thing from Quatermass experiment is here. And then like the big blob thing from X, the unknown is here. And like yeah. the focus on like the scientist convincing the authorities to do something and stuff. That's all very Quatermass. Yeah. And speaking of Max, uh, Max Gunther is played by Gerard Herter. I think he is the MVP of faces. Every (laughs) face he makes works really well. I don't think he goes so far as to be accused of uh, chewing the scenery. Mm. Um, And I think everyone else is on a spectrum of fine, you know, okay, cool, good, to a little too wooden. It's tough because Italian films did not use onset sound, right? Like everyone's dubbed here regardless of what language they were speaking on set. And so it's hard to know, like I know for a fact that we're not hearing John Marivel's real voice, um, but how many of these other people's? real voices are we hearing, right? Like how many people here are dubbed? How many people here are dubbing themselves? How many people are being dubbed by someone else, even if they did speak Italian? So it's, it's really tough to judge performances. However, yes, um, Max, that actor is clearly cast for his face. It's a great villain face. And that is the advantage of the Italian system of not having any onset sound and just dubbing all the dialogue later is, you know, Sergio Leone figured this out. Like, if you want to introduce a character and have the audience remember him, like give him a super memorable face, right? Absolutely. 
so let's move on to ranking. Um, I have some points of reference I think will be useful. Okay. I have just like a spot picked out. Oh, I also just have a spot, but I think these points of reference will still be useful. Interesting. Okay. Evan Puri, as we said, is ranked at number 85. That was their previous horror movie. Quartermass Experiment is ranked at number 18. Mm-hmm. X the Unknown is at number 35. And The Blob is ranked at number 45. So where is your spot? So, um, yeah, I, I thought, to be honest, I think I liked this better than The Blob. Really? They didn't even have a theme song then. <laughs> the reason I liked this better than The Blob was was kind of twofold. Um, one is that I liked the gruesomeness of this movie. And like, ultimately, this is a horror movie list. And I feel like the gruesomeness we see here is significant compared to everything we've seen up to this point. And, you know, really, to me, reminds me of stuff that's going to be coming in the future. And I think that's really worthwhile to point out. I think this movie goes for the gore uh, in a way that we don't see from, you know, English speaking movies. So I thought that gives it a lot of weight in a fight against the blob. Um, the other thing that I liked, so the blob gets defeated by cold. Keltiki gets defeated by fire. I feel like Keltiki gets defeated by fire was way more earned. Mm-hmm. Um, like we figure it out early on when he blows up the big blob at the shrine with the truck and then it's like a consistent thing and then it's just you know but this comet shows up to make it like super big and so like we we don't get to it in time so it's like a challenge right but like we contact the army they drive over whatever the blob is kind of got like a bit of a deus ex machina kind of feeling ending where like it surrounds the diner and then like oh but it won't come into the freezer with them Hmm. And then it's like, oh, call the army. And then they just do (laughs) No, they go to the the high school. Right. But like they they get like the CO2 fire extinguishers and and do that. But then like it's like, well, let's call the army and have them pick it up and dump it in the Arctic. And then that just kind of (laughs) happens. Um and I feel like this was the better ending. This is a more exciting ending that feels more well earned. So I liked this better than the blob. Above the blob is It, The Terror from Beyond Space, which is like the 50s alien. Mm -hmm. Um, And I liked this better than that movie as well. But right above that is Curse of Frankenstein and then like Night of the Hunter and Creature from the Black Lagoon and really classic stuff. So the spot I picked out was number 44 beneath Curse of Frankenstein above It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Okay, so... I think from our discussion and the reasons that you've given just now, you've convinced me of this spot. But let me tell Mm. you where I had been looking. I originally was feeling that this wasn't as good as Evampiri. Oh, interesting. Um, So to remind folks who might be like, what is Evampiri? Like there's so many vampire movies. This was the more kind of Elizabeth Bathory style vampire. Mm -hmm. And I was feeling like the mood setting was a bit more even in that it didn't have as much of the same kind of energy as this movie, but it was more cohesive in a sense. And also the pacing felt more controlled. It had a slower pace, but it felt more controlled than this movie where it felt kind of just like, it's out of my hands. So I was looking below 85, but not too far. Cause my spot I kind of settled on was below the, the, the revenge of Frankenstein 
and above the devil commands. Cause I was like, this is definitely better than the devil commands, but the revenge of Frankenstein. I really like how all those patients rise up against Frankenstein and yet he still like manages to get away in a weird way. Um, son of Dracula freaks. Like these are other like sort of uneven movies. So I felt like this was kind of where it belonged but like I said, from our discussion and also the reasons you gave, I think this is too low. Um, yes, I felt the pacing was a little uneven. I stand by my description of a strong start, all right middle, and then a poorly paced ending. But I think you make a great point about the gore and the way that it actually does handle mood. Mm-hmm. It's not the like slow paced creep. But it reminds me of something you said when we watched, I think it was with The Tingler. Mm. And you were like, William Castle is trying to scare you. Yes. And I think Bava is trying to gross you out with the gore. Yes. Like he's trying. Whereas the movies down here, they aren't. Absolutely not. Um, Even The Blob at 45 is not. No, The Blob is is kind of actually very safe. Yeah. Um, the thing about Eventpiri and the reason I decided to rank above it was mostly just because the plot of Eventpiri is a little scattershot and all over the place. Whereas like you always know what's going on in Kaltiki. It gets complicated, but yes, you all you can trace A to B to C, even as we might make some cul-de-sacs over to D and E and G. Yeah, but like Eventpiri was kind of like a weird mystery structure that didn't always make sense. Yeah. Yeah, so like I said, I, I'm happy with your spot. Let's go with that. All right, so entering the list at the new number 44 is Caltiki, Il Monstro Immortal from 1959, directed by Ricardo Freda and Mario Bava. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over social media in some form or another at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. That seems to be the way most people listen to the show, according to some of our statistics. And if you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on the podcasting app of your choice. Stuff like that helps the um, algorithms of the various apps like push the show to new listeners. Or you can help us find new listeners through your own good effort by sharing the show through word of mouth. If you really like what we do and want to show your financial support, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and patrons at all levels get access to our monthly poll for our horror-adjacent bonus episode. February is a short month, so February's poll is all about shorts. So once again, that's patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, it's kind of a throwback. We are seeing Vincent Price and Agnes Moorhead in Crane Wilbur's version of The Bat. Interesting. Yep. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.